You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. First John chapter 5. Let's go ahead and stand together as uh, we'll be in our, our series again this morning. Uh, coming down to the end, really, though, wrapping it up. In the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 5. It says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. This morning, we're going to be I'm going to be preaching and trying to convey to you some simple truths from 1 John 5. Have Jesus, have life. Or, if Jesus, then life. We'll be looking at these truths this morning. Let's pray as we get into the message. Father, thank you for just the way that you speak to us and that you have your your word so clearly laid out. And sometimes it takes a little digging, a little studying. And Lord, I'm thankful for this message this morning. And I pray that it would convey, be conveyed clearly, that you would just help me to step out of the way, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures, and that we would know for sure uh, where we stand in this matter today, Lord, and I do again pray for those who may not be certain if they have eternal life, that this morning would be the morning that they receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. There's a concept in logic or in reasoning called the if-then statement. And maybe you've never heard of that, that particular title, but I think you would understand the, the way that it's reasoned out. It's a conditional statement that states, if one thing is true, then the result is true. It includes a hypothesis, which is the if, and the conclusion, which is the then. Uh, in math, you might hear it stated, I've heard it uh, in geometry or other math, if P, then Q. Or if A, then the letter B. If A, then B. If A is true, then B happens. 
for an example, if you study for the test, if you study for the test, then you will get a better grade. And you say, well, I just can't take tests. Well, maybe, but if you study, the chances are you'll get a better grade. Or if you, you say, if you go to bed earlier, then it will be easier to wake up. And again, I don't know how true that is for you. If you're not a morning person, theoretically it's true. If you go to bed earlier, then it will be easier to wake up. I think you see how it works. You have a hypothesis or an assumption, and, and if that hypothesis is true, then it leads to a conclusion. I mean, to me, the real-life examples are if you wash your car, it will rain within 24 hours. If you lose something, you will find it shortly after replacing it. If your children are being quiet in their room, then you know they are up to no good. That one's always true. If you change lines at the grocery store, then the one you just left will begin moving. You, we all understand these. These are if-then. We understand the thought process. It makes sense to us. Well, many times in dissecting Scripture, in dissecting a Bible passage, this thought process can be applied to the writer's point to become even clearer. And as I was preparing for this message, I realized that the if-then can be applied to the text that we read, and it helped clarify John's point in my mind. As you read the verses that we read, you realize John's not just writing random thoughts. Now, as we've gone through the series on family traits, sometimes it seems like John is just writing random thoughts. I mean, he, uh, the, the subject will change from one thing to the next to the next. But this passage here, it's not random. He's connecting it all together. He's giving a very reasoned hypothesis that ends in a very foundational truth. And John has to approach these truths this way because he's writing to people who live in a skeptical age. Does that sound familiar? Do we live in a skeptical age? I think we, we would all say, yes, we do. We live in an age of skepticism. No one takes anything at face value these days. You can't just stand and make a bold declaration anymore unless you have solid proof or evidence. And even if we're finding out, even if you don't have very solid proof or evidence, uh, you can stand and make bold declarations. But it, it's hard to, be, to, to just trust what people are saying these days. I think the internet has probably had something to do with that. There's a lot of information out there and, 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 and much of it is not verified. It's like a Wikipedia mindset. You can just declare what's true or, or state something to be true whether or not you have evidence. And even if you do have evidence these days, uh, many people assume that it's been photoshopped or even deep faked these days. That's the spirit of the age. Nothing is certain. Everyone's a skeptic. People, uh, people's mindset is, don't make exclusive statements because my truth may not be your truth. That's the way it works these days. People say, well, there's nothing objective. That's true for you, but it's not necessarily true for me. And in John's day, he lived in a similar environment. False teachers had risen up, and they'd begun to cast doubt on foundational truths. So it becomes apparent that John is writing to give assurance in an age of doubt. He's writing to assure them about the questions like this. Who's really part of the family? How do we know who's part of the family? Uh, how do we know uh, that, you, how do you tell that someone 
is as genuine as they say they are. They were asking questions like, who's the true teacher? How are you supposed to listen to all of these voices and discern who's right? How are you supposed to listen to all the voices coming in and decide which ones are true? Uh, they were an- having to answer questions like, how strongly can we can be convinced of the claims of Jesus Christ? I mean, many are saying that he wasn't the son of God. And, and I think we take that for granted in our day and age. Um, but if you can imagine the first generation after Jesus Christ, if they never saw Jesus and they've just heard reports of Jesus and they don't have something clearly written down, even at that point and wherever they were, I mean, you can imagine it would be hard for them to know for sure. How do we know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I mean, there are a lot of people saying he's not. And then they were asking then, okay, how then do we know that we can have eternal life? Can we be sure? Well, those last two thoughts are what John primarily focuses on here in this passage. Is Jesus the Son of God? And can we know that we have eternal life? And he begins the thought in verse 5. He says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? And then you go down to verse 12, and he says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So that's, that, that's kind of the subject he's dealing with. He's dealing with how to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, and then in the end, how to know that you have eternal life. These are important questions. And they were questions I know on the readers' minds that John was writing to. They want to know, is he really, is he really God? And, if, and how do we know we have eternal life? So John is making the claim. He's making the claim that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and eternal life is available through him. But he also knows that in an age of skepticism, if you're going to make an exclusive claim, you better have some evidence. In an age of skepticism, when everyone's saying, well, I don't know if that's true or not, then you better have some good evidence. You better have a good witness. You better be able to bear record or testify that your claims are true. So, so John approaches this passage by presenting evidence to back up his claims, like a lawyer making his case. If you're going to make a case in a court of law that someone is innocent or guilty, you better have evidence and you better have witnesses. I mean, we've all seen the law shows on TV, so we know that's true. You better have evidence. You better have witnesses. You can't stand up there and make claims that this is true and this person is innocent or this is true and this person is guilty unless you have something to back it up. You, you can't, and even in our culture, you can't, it used to be that if, if someone was an authority, they would stand up and they would say what they're supposed to say and people would accept it at face value. If a policeman said something, people respected the office and they accepted what he said. Well, not anymore. If a, if a politician, well, I don't know if anybody's ever actually trusted politicians, I won't go there. But, you know, honestly, it used to be that if a preacher stood up, if a preacher stood up in our culture 40 or 50 years ago and he declared the truth, people just accepted it. Well, not anymore. We live, live in an age of skepticism where everything is doubted. And if you're going to make a claim, if you're going to make an exclusive claim especially, then you better have some evidence. You better have a good argument. You better, in a court of law, you better have witnesses and you better have evidence. In this case, John is trying to support the conclusion 
that we can have eternal life. I mean, who doesn't want eternal life? But what I find interesting is how he approaches the hypothesis. And, and follow, bear with me here. John doesn't spend his time focusing on what we receive in the form of eternal life. So his hypothesis is, I want you to know that you have eternal life. But he doesn't spend his all the time talking about eternal life and how good it is. He, he doesn't spend all of his time explaining what eternal life is. No, he goes back to the root of eternal life, the source of eternal life, the foundation of eternal life, which is Jesus Christ, and he spends his time confirming with evidence and witnesses that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. Because if he spent all of his time talking about eternal life, that's kind of like speaking about an effect, but not really dealing with the cause. He knows that their, their mentality, their confidence, their assurance about having eternal life is directly connected with their confidence or their assurance in who Jesus Christ is. And you know that hasn't changed. Our view, our confidence, our assurance in Jesus Christ directly impacts our confidence in eternal life. So John spends time presenting witnesses and evidence that confirm the genuineness of the person, Jesus Christ. Look how he begins the chapter in verse 1. Everyone look there, chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, a mark of a genuine Christian, again, we're in family traits, those that bear the family resemblance. Well, a mark of a genuine Christian or a member of the family is to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And you say, well, I don't know what Christ, that word, what does it mean? Well, it means Messiah. It means anointed one. Jesus Christ was the chosen one. What was he chosen for? Well, he was chosen to save people from their sins. That's what it means to be the Messiah. That's what it means to be the chosen one. Jesus Christ came to save people from their sins. Listen, he wasn't just some prophet. He wasn't just, just some great teacher. He is the Savior. And in order for you to be born into God's family, you have to believe that, that he is the Savior. There's an if-then statement right there. If you believe that Jesus is the Savior, then you can be born into God's family. That's basically how he starts the chapter. Now look uh, down in verse 5. It says, Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Another mark of a genuine Christian is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, he, follow me, okay? Pay attention. We've got a lot of movement already this morning. He could not be the Messiah or Savior if he wasn't the Son of God. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. He is divine. He is sinless. He's perfect. If you don't believe that about Christ, then, then you have not overcome the world through salvation. Now, it's obvious in reading 1 John that our belief in who Jesus Christ is is absolutely essential to our faith. It's the foundation of our faith. So if that's true, how is our faith in the person of Jesus Christ strengthened? Because we know that, well, and so follow, I know there's a lot of if and thens here, but if, if our foundation, if our strength and our faith is rooted in what we believe about Jesus Christ, then how do we strengthen that? How is that confirmed in us? How do we become, uh, come to an assured confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be? 
Well, John's point in this text is that our faith is not blind faith. He's not, John is saying, we have not come to all these conclusions about Christ by, by shooting in the dark. See, in the end, we do have to accept what we believe by faith. I know that we do have to choose to believe God's word, but it's not an intangible faith. And you might have people out there saying that, well, Christians, they just take a shot in the dark. It's just a blind leap of faith that, you know, they, they don't really have anything to back it up. They just have believed what somebody wrote. Well, no, we have something solid to hold on to. There is evidence. There are witnesses. And, and you can use a logical approach to faith and have it make sense. Now, in the end, it's still, we have to, in the end, make the decision by faith. But it's not blind faith. If these things are true, then this is true. It's the if-then. So John begins the if part of the text. He calls witnesses and he recalls evidence. And the first if, remember, if these things are true, then this is true. Well, the first if that I see here in verse 6 is it says, This is he that came by water and blood. And that word water, at first I was like, I wonder exactly what that's referring to. Well, it's widely accepted, and after studying it for myself, that water refers to Christ's baptism. And and that may seem a little bit strange. Why is he talking about baptism? Why would that be significant to John's point here? Well, I want you to pay attention here. The baptism of Jesus Christ marked the beginning of his public ministry. The baptism of, you say again... Why would it matter what Jesus, what, what, what Jesus' baptism, it, why was that be mentioned? Why is that important? Well, it marked the beginning of his public ministry. It marked the beginning of his, eye, uh, his life in the public eye. It presented him as the Son of God and Savior of the world. Let's, let's just go ahead and look. Look over in Matthew chapter 3 and keep your place here in 1 John. Matthew chapter 3, keep your place here in 1 John. This is the baptism of Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 13, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John, and that's not the writer we've been talking about. This is John the Baptist, Jesus Christ's cousin. It says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying... I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Say, okay, well, what does that have to do? Well, if, if the word water over in 1 John chapter 5 is referring to Christ's baptism, then it's referring to this account right here. When Jesus comes to John and he asks John to baptize him, and John says, no, you should be baptizing me. And no, Jesus, Jesus says, no, I suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, this is God's plan. It's God's plan, John, for you to baptize me. Jesus Christ came to John to be baptized, and it was an outward symbol of his obedience to his Father. See, the message conveyed to those watching that baptism was that following God requires submission. If the Son of God, listen, 
If the Son of God was willing to submit to baptism and dedicate his life to obedience to his Father, then why should we think that we don't have to submit our life to God and be, be, be obedient to our Father? See, baptism is not a matter of salvation because if it was, Jesus Christ would not need to be baptized. Baptism is God's plan for the person that has been saved as the first step of obedience. It is an outward sign not only of a cleansing that's taken place within, but it is an outward sign that we are, that we are identifying with God. We are submitting to his plan for our lives. We're going to follow him wholeheartedly. No matter what, we will submit to God and obey. It's not a part of the salvation process. It's a part of the discipleship process. After you get saved, you submit to baptism, both to show the world what's taken place on the inside, but also to identify with Christ and say, I am his, I will follow him. If the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was baptized and submitted himself to his Father, who are we to say that we don't have to follow God? He was, he was providing a pattern for us. He was providing an example for us. And the significance, according to 1 John, was that moment when he was baptized, it began a very public ministry. He, he, he didn't just show up mysteriously and invisibly, and he didn't live his life out of the public eye. From this point on, after Jesus Christ's public ministry was revealed, everyone watched him. They followed him. They knew his every move. They, they, they saw what he was doing. This event in Christ's life, life is important. It marked that beginning of that ministry. So John uses the example. We'll go back to 1 John 5. John uses the example in 1 John as a historical marker. Now, driving around here, it seems like there's historical markers everywhere. I mean, you drive around and you see this, you know, this little stone monument. And it says, in this year, this happened. And they're not always significant. I'm usually disappointed, you know. It's not that big of a deal. But this is a historical marker in, John, in, God, in Jesus Christ's life. When he was baptized, the world knew of him, and they started watching him, and he became known. There was a time, so here it is. Remember, we're looking at evidence, right? We're looking at evidence. And John is saying there was a time, there was a place and there was a person named Jesus who was baptized in the river Jordan of John. This didn't just maybe, this is not just hearsay, this really happened. It was in a moment, there were witnesses, people saw it. And what John again is trying to tell us is that our faith is not some shot in the dark. We saw him, he says. We witnessed him. John literally, John the Baptist, literally touched Jesus Christ's body and put him under water. And then brought him up out of the water. Water was dripping down his hair, down all over his body. He immersed him. And what, what John, the writer John, the apostle John is saying is that John the Baptist touched him. He was in the river with a body. This is not a shot in the dark, folks. Jesus Christ was really alive. He says, that's witness number one. That's the first if. The second if is the blood. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. The blood refers to, and you could probably guess this, the shedding of Jesus Christ's blood on the cross as he died for our sins. When John wrote, not by water, but by water and by blood, he was saying something important. He was saying something. He was saying, water doesn't cleanse us. 
but it does symbolize the cleansing of sin. It's a sign of sinlessness. If Jesus Christ is the son of God, he is holy and sinless. But listen, listen, just being sinless would not have been enough to pay for our sins. You understand that? See, Jesus Christ, he, had, he could have come and he could have said, I'm the son of God, I'm the savior of the world. And then, but if he had never gone to the cross, our sins would not have been paid for. He came, he was baptized, he lived a public life, then they took him, they crucified him, he shed blood on a cross, and that's what paid for our sins. Christ's sinless life provided a wonderful example for us, a great pattern. But if all we ever saw was his perfect life, you know what? It would be condemning. If all Jesus Christ had done was to come and give us an example of a perfect life, I would look at it and say, I really wish I could be that way, but I have no hope to because I'm a sinner. It would be hopeless had Christ come and not literally gone to the cross. See, it would be like someone saying, I have money to pay off all your bills, and it's in my account, here's my balance, it can pay all your bills. But then they never pay for all your bills. See, it doesn't do me any good. Christ came as a sinless example of the way that we are supposed to live, and yet he, went, he took the step of actually paying for our sins. He became the atonement. He died on a cross. Holy blood has to be shed as a payment for sins. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without shedding of blood is no remission. That word remission means forgiveness or pardon. From the very first sin, listen, from the very first sin in the Garden of Eden, God required a sacrifice of blood to forgive sin and restore relationship between God and man. That very first sin that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it took a lamb's blood to atone for those sins. And you say, well, that just seems really harsh. Why would blood have to be shed? I don't understand it. I mean, it does in some ways, if you think about it, it seems a little bit harsh. But what it does is it signals to us how terrible sin is in the eyes of God. He's so holy and he's so sinless that drastic measures have to be taken to restore a sinner to God again. He sent his own son to die on a cross and shed his blood for the sins of the whole world. And you know what? Here's the evidence. It happened at a certain time in a specific place as an event in history that most people accept because there were witnesses. Many hundreds saw him hanging on that cross. Many hundreds sat there and many laughed and some cried, but many saw him hanging on the cross. They saw the nails in his hand. They saw the blood that he was shedding for sins. They didn't know that he was shedding it for sins. They saw the blood dripping down from his body. They saw the thorns in his head. They saw the blood covering his face and they saw the, his back just completely chewed up from that cat of nine tails whip. They watched him die. They watched them take his body down from the cross. They watched him, them carry it away. They saw him die. That's a big true if. It really happened. And as a side note, hundreds of people saw him alive too. As many saw him die, I don't know how many did, but at least 500 saw him after he had risen from the dead. 
He didn't stay dead, which gives us real confidence in our faith. Although John doesn't mention that here, but there's some very big ifs. There's some very good evidence. There's the if of the water, his baptism, when he started the public ministry. There's the if of the blood, when he died on a cross for the sins of the whole world. He came by water and began his ministry. He died by shedding blood, and many people witnessed it. There's evidence. We have something to hold on to. The third if is found in verse 6 as well. The Holy Spirit. It says, He came not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit, capital S, that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. If the first two ifs are, or witnesses were external, Jesus' earthly ministry and Jesus' death, then this witness is internal. It's more uh, personal then. Notice the word again, it's capitalized twice in verse 6. It's the speaking of the Holy Spirit, which is the third person of the Trinity. And I won't spend a lot of time on this today because I can't even pretend to be able to explain it all to you. The Trinity is a mystery, but the concept of the Trinity is found throughout Scripture. There's one God existing eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are distinct personalities with distinct roles, but they are three persons equaling one God. The third person of the Trinity, his name is the Holy Spirit or the Spirit. It is he who John references here. He is a divine person. He's equal with the Father and Son and of the same nature. He has many functions. The way Christ described him in John 15 is, but when the Comforter, capital C, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. See, when we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, he becomes our personal helper. He dwells with us. He dwells in us. He guides us. He teaches. He convicts. He comforts us. And he leads us. If you're a child of God, if you're a true family member, one major marker or family trait in your life is that the Holy Spirit is your personal helper along the way. And I'm thankful for it. God doesn't live uh, and rule over us from a distance. No, in the form of the Holy Spirit, God dwells with us. He teaches and guides. And if you've been saved for 70 years, or you've been saved for just a few weeks, like our friend Blessing right here, he got saved after, I'm sorry to embarrass you, but I, I like embarrassing people. Blessing got saved in, a few weeks ago, and I'm telling you, it's a blessing. That he got saved. And, but you know, and I've been saved for 30 plus years. The Holy Spirit dwells with me and with blessing in the same way. When I, when I got saved, I received the Holy Spirit. And now I have a helper. I have a convictor. I have someone who leads me and somebody who guides me. And someone who loves me enough to convict me when I mess up. When I sin before God. He pricks my heart and he helps me to know that I'm wrong. The Holy Spirit is my helper. He's your helper. He's a personal help in our life. And I'm thankful because he's the third witness here. We don't just have historical evidence. No, God is working in us. God is convincing us. In this case, John is saying that the Holy Spirit convinces us of the person of Jesus Christ. He convinces us that Jesus is really who he said he was. It's an internal witness and the Holy Spirit in every Christian's heart teaches us that Jesus Christ is our sinless Savior. The Spirit takes those outside facts and he makes them personal. The water, the blood, those are external. But a child of God has something internal and personal through the Holy Spirit. 
Romans 8 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. The external witnesses of Christ, His life, His death, His resurrection, those are external, but the Holy Spirit takes those truths and somehow makes them applicable to me. It kind of reminds me of of Paul when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, he said that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That sounds pretty impersonal. But then in Galatians 2.20, he writes that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Are you seeing that today? Boy, I could get excited about this, but I don't know if I'm allowed in South Dakota. But listen, listen, God didn't just send his son to die on a cross for the world. He sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for your sins. It's not just for our sins. And yeah, he died. And yes, that happened a long time ago. It was some historical event. No, listen, he came to die on the cross for the world, but you could replace your name in John three sixteen. for God so loved Jason Jett that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, if Jason Jett believes in him, then he can have eternal life too. It's not just some abstract truth. It's not some just historical fact. God sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for my sins and for your sins. And the Holy Spirit convinces me of that. I don't, I don't have to just assume that, listen, and you may be in here today, and you say, my sins are so great, you wouldn't have any idea what I've done. You would have no idea what my past is like. You would have no idea how bad I've been. But listen, and I don't have to know, and I don't want to know, but God sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins, no matter how bad they are. He came to die for you, and the Holy Spirit right now may be convincing you of that and convicting you of that. If God is speaking to your heart right now about Jesus Christ's payment for your sins on the cross, then the Holy Spirit is the one convicting you. Don't turn that away right now. You may have come in with a burden of sin too heavy and you don't even know what to do with it. Listen, Jesus Christ died for your sins and he can lift that burden of sin today. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, God hath revealed all these truths unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things Yea, the deep things of God. Not only do we have scriptural truth and historical evidence, we have an internal witness. And he confirms all of these things to us. John mentions the Trinity in verse 7 when he says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And I'm not going to spend much time on this this verse. Uh, The Trinity is a well-known concept in scripture And he's just using it as an example to lead to verse 8 where he says, And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. So there's our three witnesses, folks. You've got the, the spirit, which is the internal witness. And you've got the water and the blood, which are witnesses testifying that Jesus Christ really lived. He really walked on this earth. He really had a ministry. He really died on the cross for our sins. And all the while, the Holy Spirit is convincing us of these things. Verse 9, he says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. The idea here is a reference to the strength of multiple witnesses. In Deuteronomy 19, it says, At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. And I'm not going to spend much time on this, but if you have one guy that steps forward and says, I saw this happen, I know he's innocent, or I know he's guilty, then you might take that for what it's worth. But if you have another guy step up and say he saw the same thing, 
then you really start believing it. If you have three come in and say, yeah, I saw it, and it matches exactly what those two other guys saying, are saying, then you have strong evidence that something is true. It's a Bible principle. In the mouth of two witnesses, it's established, especially in three witnesses. And what John is saying here is that we have the water, we have the blood, and we have the Holy Spirit. You want to be convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? It's not a shot in the dark. You, have, you can have faith that is established on something real and something tangible. You've got water, blood, and the Holy Spirit. God's provided the evidence is what he's saying. If a man steps forward and says, I saw this happen, we'd be like, okay, we're going to give some, some credence to that or we're going to give some, some credibility to that. But if God gives evidence, what John is saying is God has provided evidence. He's given you all the evidence you need to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John was big on evidence. We could read in his gospel and see how John the Baptist was a witness saying, this is really the Son of God. Christ says his own works were a witness to himself. John, in John 5, 39, Christ says the scriptures testify of him. In many places, Jesus Christ says his Father is a witness of him. The Spirit is a witness to him. Listen, what John is trying to tell us, both in the gospel and in the, in the book of 1 John, in his epistle here, is there's lots of evidence. You can believe this. You can have confirmation. You can have assurance. There are so many true ifs. Now look at verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. What he's saying is there are so many witnesses. There are so many that bear record. There's so much evidence that testifies that this is true. God has gone to great lengths to make sure we don't have blind faith. And if all these witnesses are true, and it's all laid out, and a man refuses to believe them, he is calling God a liar. It's kind of like if someone comes to you and says, uh, your best friend did something terrible. They robbed this store. You say, I just don't believe that. Not at all. I'll say, okay, well, here's our first evidence. We found his fingerprints at the scene. And you say, well, okay, that's fine. He could have just visited the store that same day. I don't know that that's good evidence. Say, okay, well, then we have still camera shots of him inside the store taking stuff. Say, well, I, mean, I don't know. That could be Photoshop. Say, okay, now we have video evidence that he was in the store. Look, this is him. It, it, this is him right here. He's taking stuff, putting it into his bag. You say, well, I, I still don't know. I know him. I just don't know that I believe it. And then, well, okay, well, look right here in the video. He takes his mask off, and it clearly is his face. You say, well, yeah, there could be a lookalike. Okay, well, look at his jacket. It has his name printed on the back. So oh, I'm just not sure. You know, it can only go so far when the evidence is this convincing for you to keep saying, I don't believe it. And what John is saying is that if a man can see all of this evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and we have witness after witness after witness that the Father has put together together to give us this confidence and yet you still say, I don't believe it, then you're saying that God is a liar. Even after all the evidence, after him bearing record, it's a serious indictment, and it's one that I think every person in this room right now needs to evaluate yourself. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? 
If you, believe, if you don't believe he's the son of God, then you are resisting the evidence that God has for 2,000 years been laying out for people. He's given us proof. He's given us evidence. He's bearing record. And you say, well, what difference does it make? Well, here, look at verse 11. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. See, this is the testimony or the record that God hath made eternal life available through Christ. And he's given it to us who are part of the family. And my question today is, who doesn't want eternal life? Who wouldn't want this? Who wants to be left out when they die? I mean, if you're going to spend eternity somewhere, someday, then why risk spending it separated from God? Who doesn't want eternal life? John's trying to present the answer to that, that thought. And what he's saying here is if all the evidence is true, and if Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then eternal life is only available through Jesus Christ. If he is who he says he is, Don't look for eternal life anywhere else. And I know it's an exclusive claim, but John says there's lots of evidence. There's plenty of proof. There's lots of testimony. There's plenty that are bearing record, and it's all in agreement. God has given us eternal life, and this life is only found in Jesus Christ. And then we come to this last if-then of this whole thought. If all of this is true, and Jesus is the Son of God, then what you believe about this is the most important decision you'll ever be confronted with. If Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you have to come face to face with that reality and make a decision about it You have to be confronted with it. It's the most important thing you'll ever decide. Because look at verses 11 and 12 say, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. If eternal life is in Jesus Christ, then the person that has Jesus has eternal life. But the converse is true. If eternal life is in Jesus Christ, then the person that does not have Christ does not have eternal life. And I want to illustrate this this morning in a simple way. Usually the teenage boys sit right up here, so I was going to use them, but Josh Collins, could you come up here? You two guys, come up here. The Wassons. Carter, you knew it was coming. You guys just stand right here across the front. See, if, if eternal life is only found in Jesus Christ, you have to have the Son in order to have life. So I'm going to stand here. Actually, I need one more. Blessing. Come on up here. I'm going to let you hold the good one here. You come stand right here. So, this, your sign says Jesus Christ, okay? So, would you open that up for us and show everybody what's on the inside? Just hold it just like this. 
So inside Jesus Christ is eternal life. Hold it up like this, nice and tall. So inside, you see, if you have Jesus Christ, you have life. Jesus Christ possesses eternal life. So if you have Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Okay, makes sense. So that's the question, and we'll get to it in just a minute. But if you don't have that, you don't have eternal life. But a lot of people are trying other things to find eternal life. There's a lot of people out there, and they're looking for eternal life in religion. And so they're, they're, they're active in their church, or they've been in church their whole life, and, and they've been active, and they've been doing the right things, and they've been going through the motions but let me just say this, the John, first John never says that eternal life is found in religion. He says eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. So inside religion, if you'll hold that open, it, there's no eternal life in religion. Now, I'm not saying that going to church is bad. I'm not saying that being active in church is, is a bad thing. That would kind of be counterproductive for me as a pastor. But, I, but if you're trusting in your church involvement to take you to heaven, you will not find eternal life in your religious activities. Right. And then there are plenty of people out there that, and this is, a, this is fitting, Carter's a real good kid, and he's looking at good works, and he's thinking, my good works are going to get me to heaven. But Carter, would you open that up for us and show us what's on the inside? There's no eternal life in our good works. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of what? Not of works lest any man should boast. And yet we may have somebody in this room even today that's thinking, if I work hard enough and I do enough good things that my good works outweigh my bad works, God will be pleased with me and he'll take me to heaven. It's not how it works. Your sin is your problem. And if your sin's not taken care of, all the good works in the world won't help you. We've got someone, Josh, over here, and, he's, and he was baptized and he's trusting in baptism to find eternal life. But when he looks into baptism and opens it up, there's no eternal life there either. And I know this goes against what many are taught. I'm just telling you, if you read the Bible and take it at face value, you never see that your faith is that you are saved through baptism. Your faith is believing in Jesus Christ alone. It's not about good works. It's not about religious activity. Faith takes place on the inside. It's a belief in Jesus Christ as accepting his payment for your sin. It's not about baptism. Baptism is a process of discipleship, not a process of salvation. Then we finally have this, your, Elijah, what, Timothy, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. I knew if I go through all of them, I'll get it. Jonathan, he thinks that his good intentions are good enough. And he'll say, well, God knows I tried. You ever met somebody like that? And they say, God knows I'm trying. God knows I'm giving it my best. And he'll make up for it. If I don't have it all right, he's gonna be, I'm going to be okay. Because he knows my intentions. But inside, Jonathan, inside your good intentions, there's no eternal life. And I want you just to get this view, this visual in your mind. There is only, in one of these, there's only one that you find eternal life, and that is in Jesus Christ. And listen, there are a lot of people in this room, and they have good works, and they have baptism, and they have good intentions, and they have all of these other things, but eternal life is never promised inside those things. It's only found in Jesus Christ. So I don't really mind or care if you have religion. I don't really care if you have good works. I don't really care if you have baptism 
or good intentions. That's not my point today. You may have all of those. But if you don't have Jesus Christ, you do not have eternal life. All of these other things are great. But if you're trusting in any of these for eternal life, you've missed the point. You, he that hath the Son of God hath life. Thank you, guys. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you don't have eternal life. Eternal life is found in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is the Son of God, remember the big if-then. If Jesus is the Son of God, and eternal life is only found in Christ, then you must have Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life. What does it all mean? Well, salvation, being forgiven of sins and restored to God, is only available through Christ. His blood on the cross is our only hope to be made right with God again. Look at the lengths he went to in order for us to have eternal life. He sent his own son. Why would you think you could find eternal life anywhere else if, if that's the length that he went to and he says, this is my plan. I'm going to let my son die on a cross for your sins. And yet we come in and we say, well, God, that's fine, but I have my own plan. No, he went to great lengths for you. Who am I to say, no, I've got my own plan. I can come up with my own way. No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. His blood on the cross is our only hope to be made right with God again. Look at the lengths he went to. He sent his son. It's not about works. It's not about good intentions. It's not about your religion. It's not about what you know. It's about a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. If you will acknowledge your sin before God and admit you can't pay for it, and then accept his payment for your sin of blood on the cross and receive by faith that payment, then you can have eternal life because you'll have the son. If you will place, if you will place your trust in Christ as payment for your sin, then you can have eternal life. We have so much evidence that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. Friends, if it's all true, if it's all true, and eternal life is in Jesus Christ, then he who has Christ has eternal life. If this is all true and eternal life is in Christ, then he who does not have Christ does not have life. Do you have Christ? Do you have Christ? Not religion, not baptism, not knowledge, not good works, not good intentions. Do you have Jesus Christ? I'm going to close with verse 13 says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. John wants you to know, and you can know. Today, I'm looking around the room, and probably my eyes are catching eyes with somebody right now who doesn't know. You're trusting in one of these other things or you've never trusted in anything or this is the first time you've ever heard about any of this. And I'm looking around the room and saying, I'm asking, do you have Jesus? 
Do you have Jesus? Because God wants you to know. God doesn't want you to be, I, I, I think, I guess, perhaps. No, he wants you to know. And the only way for you to know is to believe on the Son of God and have Jesus Christ. That's it. It won't be found anywhere else. And today I'm asking you to confront yourself with this question, do I have Jesus? And if you do, you've got eternal life. So don't make it about the other things. Make it about the person, Jesus. Sometimes we make it about everything else. No, it's still about a person. But if you don't know that you have Jesus Christ, today you can have him. And in just a moment, an invitation, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to just beg you today to submit to the work the Holy Spirit's doing in your heart right now. You can have Jesus. You can have eternal life. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please. I'm going to ask a couple of very simple questions today. Well, I'll let you answer them. No one's looking around. But if God has spoken to you, I'm going to ask that you give him the courtesy of a response today. My first question is, do you know that you have eternal life? Do you have Jesus Christ? Have you ever received Christ as your Savior? And you know for certain that by faith you have eternal life through Jesus Christ his payment for your sin on the cross, and you would just quickly raise your hand saying, I know that I have Jesus. I'm looking around, and I see hands everywhere, and I'm thankful for that. You can put your hands down. Not everybody raised their hand, though, and I'm not trying to embarrass you. I, I'm not even trying to point you out. I just want to pray for you. If, I'm in, if you're in this room today and you don't know that you have eternal life, you don't know that you have Jesus, and maybe you've looked for it in all these other things, but you haven't found it there in Jesus is eternal life. If you have him, you have eternal life. Do you, is there anyone in here today that does not know? You say, I do not know that I have eternal life. I do not know that I have Jesus. And I just raise your hand very quickly and say, would you pray for me? Pastor, would you please pray for me this morning? I don't know. I'm looking around the room and seeing if there are any hands today. Any hands over to my right? You say, I don't know. Don't be, don't be afraid I'm not going to point you out. I just want to pray for you. The most important decision you'll ever make, this is the most important confrontation that you'll ever have. Do you know? I'm looking around the room. All across the room. Folks, would you pray with me that someone be convicted of their sin this morning? All across the room. Any hands today? Would you please raise your hand very quickly and put it right back down? So by your testimony this morning, you know that you have Jesus. You know that you have eternal life. And I know that's uncomfortable. I'm not trying to make it uncomfortable. But what, what I want to mention to you then is if every person in this room knows they have Jesus, then have you made your spiritual life about all the externals? You say, well, I know it's about a person, but I've become kind of wrapped up in the works. I've become wrapped up in my religion, and I have missed the relationship and if that's the case today, would you respond to that truth? Let's stand together as every head remains bowed and every eye remains closed. I'm going to pray, and as I, after I pray, the invitation will begin. The ladies will play. And if God's spoken to your heart today, then will you take a moment to respond? I'm going to ask even our church folks to continue in a matter of prayer, in a manner of prayer, and pray for these who may not know this morning, and maybe they just didn't have the courage to raise their hand. Heavenly Father,
We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.